So if you want to follow along, um, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, uh, depending on what part of the country you grow, grew up in will depend on how you pronounce it. Um, I will probably say it both ways because I grew up in Oklahoma, uh, so we said um, Habakkuk, but I think it probably should be pronounced Habakkuk, but I haven't quite broken my habit of saying it the other way. So who knows how I'll say it today. Um, and so you can follow along with us in your Bible if you need to look in the table of contents to find where this unusually named prophet is. No shame in that. Or you can follow along in the Bible app by scanning the QR code. So while you're turning there, I want to just give us some context for where his story, the prophet Habakkuk, where it takes place in history. Now, we're going to do a big history lesson, and matter of fact, we've covered a lot of this, and we're not going to go heavy into review this morning, but we talked about this when we started our series on the Minor Prophets, about where they fit within the biblical story and timeline and a historical timeline. When we started our series uh, six weeks ago, this is week seven in the Minor Prophets, We started with the story and the book of Jonah, which took place about mid-8th century B.C., so somewhere around 750 B.C. We have since, over the last six weeks, jumped forward about 150 years, because Habakkuk's story is going to take place somewhere, give or take, around 600 B.C. Habakkuk is a prophet in the south in the southern kingdom. So if you'll remember, after King Solomon uh, dies, the nation of Israel splits into two. You have the northern tribes all gathered together in the northern nation, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. And then you have a couple tribes in the south that we refer to as Judah. And so Habakkuk is a prophet in the south and is a part of the southern tribes or the southern kingdom. And as things have moved forward in history, um, as bad as a civil war and a nation splitting in two is, it only gets worse because foreign nations begin to invade both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, things are not going well. God keeps sending prophets to say, here's why all of this is happening to you. If you will repent and turn back to the Lord, he will keep his faithful promises to you and restore you. And sometimes there's a few bright moments where people recognize they've made a mistake. They want to repent and come back to the Lord. But if they do, it doesn't last long. And so eventually, a group of people known as the Assyrians uh, march in, conquer the entire northern kingdom. Many of the people are killed. Those who aren't killed are hauled off into slavery to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire known as Nineveh. And so the southern kingdom watch this happen. They watch all of their, their distant brothers, so to speak, be killed and enslaved and their homes and their towns and their, all the things they value destroyed. And Habakkuk now has a front row seat to watch it happen to his own community. He's now looking around both with anger and sadness at what's taking place in his community in the South as things are going just as bad. There have been a few bright spots in the South. At one point, there was a king named Hezekiah 
who led uh, some renewal within the southern kingdom, but it didn't last. And then there was a king named Josiah who brought about renewal, both physical renewal and spiritual renewal. But when that king died, things went to being as worse as they had ever been. And Habakkuk saw a new superpower start to arise in the world, the Babylonian Empire. They grew so powerful that they eventually defeated and destroyed the Assyrians. And Habakkuk had a front row seat to watch all of this start to take place, and he could see what was coming. And it angered him, and it broke his heart. The book of Habakkuk is unique. Because normally a prophet gets a word from the Lord, and then he goes and delivers that to all the people. But we never see that in this book. As a matter of fact, not once does Habakkuk ever even talk to anyone else. The entire book is a series of prayers. It's a conversation between the prophet and God, but not even really a conversation. It's more like an argument between the prophet and God. In many ways, what Habakkuk prays is what we would call a lament. Now, if you were with us last year, we went through a series where we examined um, some of the Psalms. And we looked at different categories of Psalms, and one of them is a lament. A lament is when someone comes and brings a complaint to God to draw God's attention to some kind of violence or injustice in the world and to demand that God do something about it. That's really what many of Habakkuk's prayers are. And so what we see in his book is a cycle of Habakkuk bringing a complaint and then God responding to him. And so as we begin this book, this is how Habakkuk's story and his book that's named after him begins in verse 1 of chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. There's a couple interesting things here that would be easy to miss or just not know. And the first one is this word oracle. Because really, it, it can be translated that way, but the Hebrew word, Massah, really means burden. And so really what we're, we're getting this morning is a look into the burden that Habakkuk had to carry. Some of you this morning may resonate with that. You feel like coming in here, you're carrying a burden. Maybe like Habakkuk, you look around at the world and you just get angry. You're confused. You're disappointed. Maybe when you look at your life, the things going on around you, and it feels just like a burden that you're carrying. The other interesting thing here that I think just gives us insight into what's going on is Habakkuk's own name. His name in Hebrew literally means to wrestle. And that's what he does. That's what this book is about. It's about this prophet wrestling with this burden of being angry and disappointed about life, about what's taking place immediately in front of him and all around him. And so what we're going to do is after verse 1, we jump into Habakkuk's first complaint. And so let's just look at it together. 
verses 2 through 4 in this first chapter. Here's what the prophet says. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So this prophet, he says things that I think most of us would be a little cautious about saying. Most of us, I bet, because of the way you were raised or taught, would feel guilty about approaching God like this. Like, can you say that? Can you ask God questions in such an accusatory way and not get struck down dead? I mean, but what the prophet is saying is, Lord, your law, it's being totally ignored. Violence runs rampant, and the leaders who are supposed to be there to stop these kinds of things from happening are so corrupt, they're actually contributing to all of this evil. What Habakkuk might have prayed had he lived in the 21st century. God, do you even see the evil, the wickedness, the immorality, and the violence that's taking place all around me? Do you even see what I see? Do you know the burden that I'm wrestling with? God, do you not see it or do you just not care? And so God will respond. The next couple of verses. God responds, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe it if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's another name for the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation. (laughs) As shocking as this is, God doesn't stop there. In the next handful of verses, God is going to give 16 different descriptive traits and characteristics of the reputation of the Babylonians on just how evil and fierce and destructive they are. When this prophet comes to God and says, do you not see or do you just not care? God's response is, oh boy, look around you. Because what's taking place, you couldn't even wrap your mind around if I told you fully. Do I not see or do I not care? Let me tell you what I'm doing. I am raising up the Babylonians as we speak. Now, if you haven't connected all the dots yet, not the answer Habakkuk was looking for. So he's going to lodge his second complaint. We'll look at just a little bit of it. Verses 12 and 13. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes then to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? <laughs> this prophet says, are you not the God of the universe? Are you not the one who is so holy that your pure eyes cannot look upon evil? Yet you, this holy, holy God, are going to use a nation who is more evil to punish a nation who is less evil? You're raising up the Babylonians? That's your answer to the violence and corruption that's happening among our people? God, I get you using or speaking to or blessing imperfect and sinful humans. I mean, that's your only option, right? That's the only kind of humans. That's one thing. But to speak to or to use or to bless people like that? That's something else. It's as if the prophet's saying, I thought I knew you, God, but apparently I don't. So Habakkuk will end his prayer essentially by saying, I'm going to take my stand right here and let's just see what God has to say about this one. Yeah, holy God. What are you going to do now? How could you dare use a more evil nation to punish a less evil one? How does that work? So God will respond. God begins his response by basically telling Habakkuk to sit down, to shut his mouth, and to start paying attention. Because what he has to say next is something Habakkuk can take to the bank. Does that phrase still work today? I mean, that made sense when we wrote checks, right? Take this to the bank, right? It's good. Ask our kids, what, is, what does it mean to take some to the bank? They'll be like, I don't, what does that mean? God says it may not happen as fast as some would like. But what I'm about to tell you most assuredly will happen. Chapter 2, verse 4, is a part of God's response. He tells Habakkuk this, speaking about Babylon. Behold, his soul is puffed up and is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. After this, God is going to pronounce five woes on the Babylonian nation. He's going to describe the kind of oppression that is perpetuated by Babylon and nations like Babylon. Throughout the next 15 verses, he will pronounce a woe on this nation and nations like it 
for their evil. And here's the evil that God sees in Babylon. That they take what doesn't belong to them. Particularly the rich and powerful who take from those who don't have the means or the resources to prevent it. That this nation relies on their own wealth and treasures for security and protection. That they abuse others to build their own empire. That they manipulate others, tricking people into dishonoring themselves. And finally, that they're full of idolatry. That rather than worship the Creator, they worship created things. Things made by their own power and money and hands. The nation of Babylon and nations like it have made money and power and national security into their gods and make people slaves to their own national identity. These things aren't unique to Babylon. Given the human condition, most nations become just like Babylon. They take what doesn't belong to them. They use what money and power they have to take more money and power from those who have little to none. They find their own security and protection in their possessions and their wealth. They're willing to use and abuse others to build their own empire. They're willing to manipulate others to make themselves look good and others not. And they devote their lives individually and corporately to worship created things rather than the Creator. And so God's answer to Babylon is really God's answer to all generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by nations like this. So what's, what's the answer? Is God just going to let this cycle of one evil nation rising up to punish another evil nation only for then a different evil nation to rise up and punish the original evil nation? Is this just the cycle that God's going to let go on forever? Is this God's only answer to violence and immorality? And What, what does God have to say? After God declares to the prophet, oh, I know just how evil Babylon is. I see what's taking place. And I assure you this, Habakkuk, Babylon will get what's coming for them. My justice does not overlook anyone or any nation. The evil I see will not go ignored or unpunished. Habakkuk responds in prayer. He begins to prayerfully reflect upon how God has dealt with other violent, evil, and oppressive nations in the past. And so chapter 3 is the closing chapter of the book. It's not long. And it's Habakkuk's final prayer where he begins to reflect not just on what's taking place in front of him, but what has taken place in the past. 
He begins to reflect on God's faithfulness and his power and his holiness and his justice. And he starts to think back over the history of his own people. How when they were the ones who were being oppressed by a foreign evil nation, God showed up to faithfully bring them freedom. That the evil ones who had oppressed others, God showed up in mighty, mighty, visible ways to bring judgment and justice on the evil and the wickedness. That as God's people turned to the Lord and were faithful to, to follow him, how he was their avenger. He was their protector. That he brings justice to the oppressed by lifting them up and he brings justice to the oppressor by tearing them down. And after reflecting over hundreds of years of history where God's faithfulness was on full display, this is what Habakkuk prays towards the end of his prayer in verse 16 of chapter 3. He says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. As Habakkuk starts to remember all the activities of God in the past, he's overwhelmed with a sense of awe, knowing what it will be like on the day of the Lord. If you remember back when we started this series, the day of the Lord is a phrase that the prophets love to use. The day of the Lord is a description of when God comes to bring his justice to this earth. There are multiple days of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. And as we start to get a picture in the new, there's also an ultimate and final day of the Lord that will come one day as well. And as Habakkuk begins to reflect on when, what it looks like and what happens when God comes to bring justice on evil and wickedness, whether it's on a foreign nation or in, on his own people, he begins to just tremble with realizing the weight of what it means. And he acknowledges something important. A recognition of God's sovereignty. That in his divine wisdom, God may be using a, play, a people like the Babylonians to bring punishment on his own people for their evil and wickedness, but one day, justice will reign supreme. There is no evil and wickedness that will go ignored in this world. It may not happen when we want, as fast as we want, but one day, Justice will come. And these are the final words of the prophet's prayer. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, 
the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Devastation. He says this though, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes my, me tread on my high places. Habakkuk has become the embodiment of what it means for the righteous to live by faith. That statement that God made in chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk has become the embodiment of that truth. And then we have this phrase to close out the book, to the choir master with stringed instruments. This prayer was meant to be sung and celebrated among God's people. To remember and reflect on God's faithfulness in the past, to acknowledge the hardship of today, and to declare that we will rejoice in the Lord. That no matter what's taking place in my life, in my world, in my community, I can and I will rejoice. There's a couple points for you and I to take home today. From this story that is roughly 2,600 years old, it's as real and relevant as it has ever been. I want you to look at verse 18 more than anything. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Here's the first lesson we can take. Joy can live alongside grief. It's possible that joy can live alongside very painful, very difficult, very confusing circumstances. This wasn't enjoyable for Habakkuk or his community. But it did not mean that joy could not be found. Habakkuk does not hold back on how he feels. He is not afraid to question what God is doing. He's not afraid to reflect on the pain of what is happening and what he knows is coming. He knows is coming. Yet joy can live alongside grief. Here's the second point we can take. Joy is a choice. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy. Joy is a choice you have. And it does not have to be tied to your circumstances or your feelings. Number three, joy comes from remembering and repeating. This declaration of rejoicing and joy came after Habakkuk thought about God's faithfulness in the past that affirmed all the things he knew to be true about God about his power and his holiness and his sovereignty and his justice. And when things around us are dark, 
we remember and we repeat who God is and what He has done. Four, the heights of joy come from the depths of faith. Notice what he says. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He didn't say, I'll take joy from him. Habakkuk wasn't saying to God, I'll take joy when you give me what I want or think I'm owed. Rather, he said, I will take joy in you. Because we largely don't control our circumstances. Sometimes God will hear our prayers and our cries out and he'll change them and then sometimes he doesn't. But we take joy in him. Notice what he says in verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He didn't say strength is a gift from him. Our strength is him. We don't wait for God to give us strength. We find it in him. We do not wait for God to give us joy. We find it in him. Our joy and our strength is rooted in who God is, not the circumstances around us. In that declaration, the righteous shall live by faith. God was saying that the true righteous do not look to themselves for salvation or assurance. They do not place their trust in their own ability or might or supremacy. Rather, the righteous... Those who will be saved from God's wrath and judgment and final justice are those who live by faith. It is trust in the sovereignty and goodness of God and submission to his divine plan and will and timing. That's what brings true, lasting freedom and salvation. And it's why the New Testament loves to quote Habakkuk 2.4 over and over more than almost any other verse from the Old Testament. And so as we close, let me share with you just one of those instances. Romans 1, 16 and 17. As Paul is reflecting on the truth of the gospel, the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The true righteous don't look to themselves to get through dark times. The true righteous don't look to themselves for freedom and salvation and victory. The true righteous live by faith. The true righteous turn their attention to the character of our God and find joy and strength and satisfaction and salvation in who he is. Knowing that regardless of what happens today, we trust and believe that one day his justice will come. One day the Lord, the day of the Lord will arrive. And he will 
take to himself his people. And on that day, we will find total freedom and salvation and justice. Let's pray. Oh Lord, if, if only most of us had the courage to pray like Habakkuk. Instead of telling you what we think you want to hear, if we were just honest enough to say what we really felt. Willing to be honest about the hardships and the darkness that may be taking place in our lives or in our communities. Honest about what we don't think is fair. Honest about how we wish you would do things differently sometimes. But if we were not only honest like him, if we were also faithful like him, to remember your goodness, to hold fast to who you are, to find joy and strength and salvation in you. Not in what you could give us or we think we're owed, but just find it in you. Would you help us come to that place today? No more hiding, no more walls, no more masks. Just real and honest with you. Would you grant us the faith to trust you in the face of all that may be taking place around us? That we would find hope and security in who you are. If you'll keep your eyes closed for a minute, this final song we're about to sing, we're going to say a couple phrases in this chorus. that I hope are not just empty words for you. Words that you repeat just because they appear on a screen. But they'd be a cry of your heart. Either because it's true for you today or a cry because you want it to be true. And it's your request that God would make it true in your heart. We're going to say to the Lord, you are my all. Lord, help that be true. We're going to say, you're my joy. Lord, help it be true in us. We're going to say, you're my righteousness. Lord, may we declare that from our hearts this morning. Lord, thank you for who you are. As we respond to you in song, as we respond to you in prayer and meditation, as we respond to you by going to the table, taking of the bread and the cup to remember the greatest moment of your love and faithfulness put on display when you died on the cross for us. That firm foundation that we can always look back to, to remember and to repeat, to remind us of who you are. Would the way we respond to you this morning be worthy? Not of our circumstances, but of who you are. As we come before you, 
as we declare these things to be true in our hearts and we beg you to make them more true and deep, more deeply rooted in our souls.